Pastor Brian spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, June 15th, we're studying Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. In today's text, John sees another sign in heaven, seven angels with seven plagues, and they receive seven bowls full of the wrath of God to pour out on the earth. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchie, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you for having me, Tim. So we get started today. Give us just some general information about the book of Revelation. How do we need to approach it as Christians so that it remains a helpful and useful book to us? Yep, that is a great place to start with any study of Revelation, because there's a lot to track when you're reading this book. Uh, the title uh, just comes from the first word of the book, uh, Revelation, the revelation of God to John, essentially. Um and you'll notice as you read through it, as I'm sure many of our listeners who have read through it do, there is just the smattering of numbers and characters and places and events that are a little difficult to track and keep together. So one helpful note is to remember the genre that um, Revelation falls into. It's called apocalyptic literature. And admittedly, the actual genre apocalyptic, the parameters aren't quite as sharp or clear as we'd like them to be, but um, a few things to keep in mind, and that certainly is what Revelation is, an apocalyptic book, which is different from many other books of the Bible. Um, This is a a kind of a concise definition from one of the commentaries I researched, Uh, apocalyptic literature is a kind of literature in which divine secrets are revealed, usually by heavenly angelic figures given to a human recipient in a historical setting. So it's very much grounded in history. John was an actual person. Uh, This isn't a a myth or a fairy tale or anything. John really did have this vision. Uh, But a lot of the stuff that he sees we take symbolically Uh, That's some of the markers of apocalyptic literature. Um, There's a lot of talk of what we call eschatology. That's the uh, study of last things, the end times, uh, what will happen at the end of the world when Christ returns. There's a lot of that in this book. Uh, There's, again, much symbolic language with the numbers um, and some of the figures in the book. Um, There's a lot going on, we'll see, as a battle between good and evil, all happening under God's reign, so it's not as though things are completely out of control and God is not sovereign. It pictures God as sovereign, but this um, battle between the forces of evil and the forces of good. Um, And then a great deal of, and again, angelic heavenly figures and visions getting this message from God to John, and then, of course, he writes it down in the text. Um, 
So that's probably the biggest, you know, those are probably the biggest factors to keep in mind. There's a great deal you could say about apocalyptic literature. Um, there is other apocalyptic literature in the scriptures. Uh, the book of Daniel contains some, for instance, but this is full-fledged. The whole book is it. Um, and it's, you know, it's different than an epistle, than a gospel, some kind of historical narrative. Um, so you don't want to treat it exactly the same as some other books you read. I think that's a mistake a lot of people make when they approach the book of Revelation. Um, some people have this mindset, I need to take everything in here uh, quite literally. Uh, when we would say, uh, we take the Bible seriously, but there is a lot of figurative language in it. You don't have to take you know, a lot of the numbers in here literally. There's things they're trying to convey. Um, but, uh, just one other thing to point out, this book is not, it's not supposed to be off limits for Christians. It, it, I think it comes across as quite intimidating because of the difficult nature of interpreting it, but we have a wealth of information, um, at our hands to faithfully interpret it. We have literature, we have commentators, we have faithful pastors and theologians who have done a lot of legwork, um, and, <laughs> You know, with that in mind, it should be, you know, as easy as ever, so to speak, to interpret this with so much work done before us. But you also want to treat it with respect um, and, you know, understand the purpose of the book, which really is to uh, prepare us for the last day, uh, to call us to repentance, as some of these churches are, in the, are being called to, and point us to the promises that God has in store for us. So that's probably... I'm. You could, again, you could go on about the book, but I think right. that's probably probably enough for this interview. Sure, sure. Okay, so we're in chapter 15 today, and it does seem to be a bit of a turning point in the book of Revelation, not disconnected to what we've been reading, but the way chapter 15 starts with John seeing another sign in heaven, language reminiscent of the way chapter 12 started, a, a sign, a great sign in heaven there. It seems like there's a bit of a transition. So what what do we need to know about the surrounding context that helps us with chapter 15? Well, chapter 14 uh, has a couple of similarities. We see the language about um, the wrath of God, which we'll talk about in our, um, in our discussion on chapter 15. Chapter 14 mentions the judgment of the Lord, the wrath of God. It kind of introduces it um, with a different sign in chapter 14 with three angels. We'll see there are seven angels in chapter 15. Uh, and then chapter 16 takes another kind of preliminary setup where the eight, we see the angels given these bowls of God's wrath, and then 16 shows kind of the content of those plagues um, that are in the bowls of wrath. Um, but another comfort that we see in this context, especially in chapter 14, those first five verses is the sovereignty of the Lamb of God, who is very prominent throughout Revelation this is an extremely Christological book, and that comes in the context here where you do see um, God's judgment against evil, against the enemies of the church, um, and that's you know a bit jarring. But you also see, uh, and, and I'm sure you'll um, have talked about this already on one of the other episodes with 144,000, um, in that section, it talks about those who follow the Lamb, those who have been redeemed from mankind. So this is kind of just twofold. We see God's judgment, but also the comfort to those who don't experience this, um, who have you know, been um, saved from God's judgment from, 
from eternal condemnation by the Lamb, uh, who is sovereign throughout this whole thing. Again, going back to that portrayal of uh, their forces of evil, forces of good, God and his messengers, and then Satan and his messengers. But in it all, God's in control, and his Son um, is the one who has redeemed us. And you know, we don't need to look at these images of the future um, or these these harbingers and and be terrified because we have the Lamb reigning over us at all times. All right. So let's go ahead and take a look at Revelation chapter 15 this morning. John writes, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels we're finished. That's our text for today. That is Revelation 15, verses 1 to 8. All right, so Pastor Heckman, the chapter opens. Another sign in heaven appears. John sees it. We've got seven angels with seven plagues. Talk to us about these, these characters. That Yes, that number stands out throughout Revelation, the number seven, and it's important to try and understand what is it getting at. Uh it almost worked perfectly. There are uh, eight mentions of seven angels. There was almost seven mentions of seven angels, but bad. Uh, still the number is significant. Um, the angels are linked. If you look at chapters two through three, um, there there's a mention of the angels of the seven churches, which we see in those first couple chapters, first few chapters. And then angels who blow the seven trumpets in chapter eight, verses one through six. Um, these are just the messengers of God who on the last day will deliver the judgments of God to those who are enemies of Christ, those who don't um, trust in him as their savior from their sin, um, which is not to say it's the angels are the one from which this originates. They're just the messengers. This is still coming from God. Um, and then that last uh, bit about the number seven, seven again is just a pr- very prominent number in the scriptures. You go back to um, the creation, when did God rest on the seventh day? The creation was completed on the seventh day. Um, Matthew 18 is another one our hearers will probably recognize. Um, when the disciples are talking about forgiveness and Jesus, uh, says you shouldn't forgive someone seven times, but 70 times seven, which is not to say you can stop forgiving when you've reached 490. Um, it's a number of completion. Forgive as many times as you ought uh, till there's nothing left to forgive because the Lord fully and completely forgives you. So it's, um, 
it's kind of twofold here. There's that completion aspect where we see um, the wrath of God is finished. Uh, this seven represents the full and final judgment of God because this is the last, these are the last things, the last day. So there won't be anything else after that as far as judgment goes. Um, but it's also actually, uh, this is an interesting bit I, I picked up from uh, some of my reading. Uh, throughout Revelation, the number seven represents God's presence by his spirit. So that's just saying uh, these are God's angels. Um, they are God's plagues. This is God um, sending his judgment on behalf of his people. He is judging the enemies of the church who persecute the church. Um, so God is present with us through his actions. Uh, and that's really a, another thing that's really tied up in the number seven. And the comfort is uh, with this number seven, you see this idea of completion. There's the word finished. Um, uh, uh, telos would be, I think, the Greek word that comes from from end or goal. Um, we hear Jesus cry, Tetelestai on the cross, it is finished. That word comes up a couple times here. First in verse one, the wrath of God is finished. Um, and then verse eight uh, which we'll get to later, um, the plagues of the seven angels were finished. So there is an end to all of this uh, and a completion to it. It's not something we'll have to endure uh, for eternity. Um, and that's a, I think that's a comfort looking forward where God does um, judge the enemies of the church now, but there will be a final judgment that brings closure to that where God will eradicate evil um, forever. And I'm, I, for one, am looking forward to that. And that's something that these completion ideas call to mind. Mm, yeah, and I think as you as you read chapter 15 from the start, and just thinking through this in the context of the larger book, we've seen these cycles of seven already. So there were the seven seals, and then the seven trumpets. And now in this chapter, we're getting an introduction to the seven bowls, or sometimes it's translated seven censers, that are going to be poured out in the next chapter. Just reading this so far... It, the language does seem to have the sense of, okay, we're starting to get closer to the end here. It, it's not only going to, it's not just this continuing spiral that never ends, but things are progressing here. And this, just the language of this chapter, given where we've been, does start to have that sense to it, that things are escalating now, things are moving all the more quickly now toward the end. Mm -hmm. And so these these bowls, these sensors are going to be the start of that. Right. Yeah. yeah, and we'll see it a lot more in the passage, too. That's right. That's right. Okay, so John sees this sign in heaven. It's great and amazing. Seven angels, seven plagues. These are the last. With them, the wrath of God is finished. Now, as, as he sees that introductory scene, then, he sees again in verse 2 something that appears to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, we've seen a sea of glass in Revelation before. Uh, talk to us about what we're, we're seeing here with the sea of glass in chapter 15. Yeah, this one's a little different because it mentions it's mingled with fire, and we need to kind of unpack that a little bit. Um, it's a You might picture it as a battlefield that John is seeing with the saints standing around the glassy sea, and a lot of our listeners will recognize that from uh, the hymn Holy, 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 which I, I want to say Trinity Sunday is coming up in a week or two here, which will probably many of us will sing. Um, holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Now, uh, the crowns mentioned here, the if you look in the hymnal on that, in the bottom corner of that, 
page, uh, you can always see that the scripture references that the text is using, and it mentions Revelation 4 and Revelation 7, but this sea of glass is likely the same one that's referenced there. So um, it's, a, it's a picture of peace and also uh, kind of a picture of the reality that the church on earth, the church militant still faces. So um, the glassy sea is uh, meant to be a picture of the peace and the calm that the saints who are at rest, we call them the church triumphant, of course, they have attained that um, that rest with Christ, not uh, the full um, you know picture of eternity where they'll be you know their souls and bodies will be reunited at the resurrection. They'll be in a new creation, and yet they do rest from their labors, as we see um, actually in chapter fourteen. It says, mm-hmm. um, "Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed." says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So that's that's the peace that's coming in this picture, the glassy sea. It's calm, it's peaceful. Um, even though it's a battlefield, there is rest, future rest for God's people. But that um, mingled with fire is really meant to say there is still tribulation on earth for the church militant. They still contend with Satan and his demons with the temptation of Satan. <clears throat> and... Uh, it's it's an interesting mix here where we it's it's kind of law and gospel in a way where it says we still um, have our sinful nature, the world and Satan to battle, um, and there's still difficulty, but there's also uh, rest because you're redeemed by Christ, but also future rest when the Lord calls you to be with Him, um, and then after that raises you from the dead. And then um, just one more comment on uh, what exactly is John talking about with the beast here? That's yeah, an image that you, comes before up. Before you go there, oh, yeah. let, go me, let me just, on the sea of glass mingled with fire, it is an interesting image. And just as, as you were talking about the various things that are involved there, some of the other passages in Revelation that came to my mind that I think apply, and you might have mentioned this in terms of some of the references in the hymnal, in Revelation chapter 7, where John sees that great multitude clothed in white robes, you know, the elder asks him, who are these? And the elder is the one to give the answer. And he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And I, I think maybe the glassy sea here that's mingled with fire is a picture of that, mm-hmm. that the saints have come out of the great tribulation. So there's fire, there's been a great tribulation, but it's a glassy sea because they've they've come out of that great tribulation. Or... Or maybe another way of, of thinking about that same thing, again, in terms of the imagery that Revelation has used, in chapter 13 especially, where you have the two beasts that the dragon is using to attack the church, there's the picture of the fire, but then as, as you pointed out already, at the beginning of 14, you picture the lamb with 144,000, and they're singing the song of victory, as they're doing here. Mm-hmm. There again, you have that image, I think, of the fire of the tribulation, but it's still a glassy sea because the saints have come through it victorious in Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I mean, it's a, so it's a, it ends up being a, you know, we've seen the glassy sea before, but now mingled with fire just, I think, adds to the comfort of that image. Yes, exactly. All right, so tell us now about the, the beast, its image, those who've conquered those things. So the beast comes up a handful of times in Revelation, uh, and they represent a, Various things. Uh, there was there was a lengthy um, explanation in in one of the commentaries I referenced, and I won't 
get into that. I'm sure there's other episodes that will have done that by this point. Um, here, the beast uh, in the context would represent um, uh, uh, the the worldly powers that use their authorities to to oppress God's people. Essentially, an enemy of the church. Um, it's the dragon is Satan in Revelation. A beast is something that's kind of used by Satan to oppress the church. Um, there are people who, um, having been oppressed and persecuted by these worldly forces um, that are coming out of this, that's we'll get to their song of victory in a second. But um, this is John picturing what does the church on earth have to deal with going forward toward that last day. It's um, all kinds of things that Satan uses in the world on his behalf, um, his corrupting uh, nature that that takes good things of God and twists them to be things they should not be. This is something Christians have to deal with, and I'm sure our listeners are are very familiar with um, you know people and institutions who have been um, you know filled with sinful people who do sinful things. That's something the church deals with often. So that's the beast uh, in in so many words that John is talking about. The people who have conquered. It's not exactly their direct action that has conquered the beast. Um, that's a little bit of what it sounds like, but um, we would say they have come through suffering and pain on behalf of Christ and have conquered the devil by being delivered from their suffering, have conquered the beast. Um, they've been saved by grace. They have been called home in death, and now they rest with Christ. Their spirit rests with Christ. Their body lays in the ground, and they await the final judgment where they'll receive their ultimate vindication for the suffering that they have undergone and, and been faithful. Uh, we say vindication is simply just uh, something that shows that what you did was right, it was true, it was good. And that's what the resurrection is. That's what Jesus' resurrection was, his vindication that he was the son of God. Um, and that's what these Christians are awaiting. They're singing as they await, which we'll get into in just a minute. But uh, just one verse before I before I'm done with this little portion, I, I thought of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, Paul writes, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in of evil in the heavenly places. So uh, Paul is really very similar in how he pictures the battle between good and evil here. It's not I don't know, like a metaphysical, like this, you know, invisible forces against each other. It's real things fighting against each other. Um, and Satan is real. He's not a, a comic character like a lot of people in movies and whatever these days portray him. He's real and he can do things, but he is always held at bay by the Lord Jesus, uh, who is more powerful than Satan, than death, than sin. Um, and... He is the one who gives us rest from this battle eventually. So it's very tiring uh, to battle the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. But this passage shows us that uh, there is victory that we get to look forward to. And even now we have victory uh, with our Lord Jesus Christ, even as we um, struggle against all these forces of evil. Yeah. I mean, this language of conquering is one that we've seen elsewhere in the book of Revelation. I, I'm not sure if this is exactly the most recent one, but I the one that comes to my mind most recently, especially, is in Revelation chapter 12, 
which summarizes exactly what you were saying. It's after the dragon has been cast out of heaven with his demons, and there's the voice from heaven that says, they, that is the, the saints, they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And this language of conquering, again, goes all the way back to the letters to the churches. In each one of those, there was a promise given to the one who conquers. And so the, the conquering of the beast and its image and the number of its name is always found in our faith in Christ, who is the one who conquers. And again, it's been a while since we've, we've looked at the epistle of, of John, but in 1 John, you know, you have that verse in chapter 5, I think it is, where it is our faith that overcomes or conquers the world, mm-hmm. that language of overcoming that's found in John's gospel and his epistles also is a part of this language. So to, to be, and I mean, this is Paul in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors, we're the victors, we've overcome because of the Lamb. And, and that's that's where this vision of Revelation continues to come back to that comfort, is because it's all focused on what God has done for us through the Lamb, who has conquered by his death and his resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so fantastic, fantastic comfort here in Revelation, even in chapter 15 that we're looking at. We're going to go ahead and take our break before we jump into this new song that we hear in verse 3. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Joel Heckman this morning about Revelation 15. We'll be right back. Stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, June 15th. We're studying Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 to 8, with Pastor Joel Heckman. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, we're talking about these seven angels with seven plagues. They've kind of taken a bit of a back seat. They're going to come back up. In the meantime, John has seen this sea of glass mingled with fire, those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. So the saints that have come out of the Great Tribulation, they are standing there at this sea of glass. They've got harps of God in their hands. We've seen harps before in Revelation connected to the singing of the saints, praise to God. And that's what we're going to hear now again in chapter 15. And particularly, we're going to hear that this is now them singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb. Perhaps before we look at the actual text of the song that's recorded in this chapter, talk to us about the fact that this is the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. I'm not sure that we've met Moses explicitly like this before in this book. I know we've we've looked at passages that he's written, and certainly John's referencing them, but I think this is the first time he's mentioned Moses by name. 
Yeah, this is a reference back to the Old Testament, of course. Um, so the event it's describing is, of course, God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Pharaoh and his chariots at the Red Sea, and then the song that they sing. So the Red Sea event deliverance is Exodus 14, 19 through 31, and then the song that they sing in response to that is Exodus 15, verses 1 through 21, and many people consider this Exodus act, God's deliverance, as really the the defining salvation event of the Old Testament. Um, there's also the deliverance back from exile um, far later, but this is what a lot of people think of in terms of, you know, this is a really good preview of the deliverance, especially with the Passover, um, and the preview that gives us not only of the Lord's Supper, but the blood of the lamb covering us and um, the judgment of God passing over us. So John is referencing back to Moses here and he's combining it. It's very interesting how he combines Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb. And even though this song de describes the Exodus event, it's really um, just a song talking about not just the Exodus event here, but all the mighty deeds of God in which he delivers his people from their enemies, from their persecutors, and shows forth his righteous judgment against um, the enemies of his people um, as an act of mercy towards his people. And um, this is sung here uh, by the people who have been delivered by the Lord Jesus. So again, um, I think you know there, there are many, many Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. It's really interesting how John brings together these um, portions of the scriptures where a lot of people see very much um, uh, almost a contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament, whatever it may be, the way God acts, the way God talks. But John beautifully ties them together here by saying the God who delivered the people of Egypt or from Egypt, um, his people Israel, and he delivered them as the Old Testament says often by a mighty hand. This is the same God who um, deliver Jesus up from death to conquer death, and he's the same God who will bring um, these, as we'll see in the song, righteous acts on behalf of his people. And it, I think it does a great job of tying together and the Old and New Testaments and saying this is the same God. Um, he might say different things uh, in one and the other, but they're not contradictory. It's the, the God who works on behalf of his people, and we'll see that as we look at these lyrics. Yeah, and, and just to, to point out that within our hymnody, the Song of Moses and the Exodus event often shows up in the context of Easter, so that the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb that are tied together in, here in Revelation 15 often get tied together in our own hymnody. Just two brief examples that I, I come to my mind off the top of my head. Uh, one is, Come You Faithful, Raise the Strain, it's number 487, in Lutheran service book, and that talks about God bringing his Israel from joy to sadness. That's what he's done for us in Easter. And then the other one, which is a, a Lord's Supper hymn in Lutheran service book, is At the Lamb's High Feast We Sing, mm -hmm. number 633. That one really makes use of the Exodus imagery to talk about the victory that Christ won at Easter and that he now delivers to us in the Lord's Supper. So the Church has picked up this thought that the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb go together throughout the ages in our hymnody. So with that in mind, uh, talk to us about what is being sung in Revelation 14 in the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb in verses 3 and 4. Well, interestingly, 
John uses uh, the phrase great and amazing twice in this passage. First, you'll notice in verse 1, and then again, it's the first line of the song of Moses he references. And uh, the song is really reminiscent of a, many, many other scripture passages that talk about God in a particular way. And it's a good reminder that we want to talk about God the way he has spoken about himself in this revelation of scripture. Um, we see Psalm 11, verses 2 through 3, as you look at this, uh, verses 3b and 4. Great are the works of the Lord. This is Psalm 111, verses 2 through 3. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Amos has this description of God in chapter 4, verse 13. Behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads in the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. And then just one other one I, I think uh, mirrors this passage, uh, the Song of Moses really well, is Malachi 1.11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Again, that greatness of God as reference all the nations like it does here in Revelation 15.4. My name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So as you walk through this line by line, you're reminded of just the essence of God, the nature and character of God. Um, he is just, and we see that as a huge characteristic going on in the book of Revelation, the justice of God. Uh, he's not a malevolent God. He's not um, a bitter, angry tyrant who is unpredictable um, and rash and harsh. He is a good and just God who um, holds fast to his promises. He treats evil as it ought to be treated. He is merciful. He is true in his ways. Um, he's the king of the nations. Um who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? And again, getting back to the name of God, um, we see those passages that talk about, um, you know, honoring the name of the Lord, fearing the name of the Lord. Um, why do you fear it? Why do you glorify God? We see that in the last half of verse 4. You are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So these are the people of God, to, you know, taking the song of Moses and singing as almost as a victorious song. Um, and it's interesting because the context, we we see the glassy sea mingled with fire. Um, and I think that's an important point to make about the Christian's perspective, not only of the past and the present, but also the future, where we're, you know, poor theology teaches us to think we only sing songs of praise and victory when we've gotten the thing for which we prayed, we've seen like the final results, um, the final victorious results of God's plan at some point in our lives. Um, you know, if, if we're, if we're, if life is going well, then, uh, you sing a praise and a song of victory, but if life is going poorly, you have to, you know, this is the poor theology. You're supposed to, some theologians say, speak victory over it or try to almost will it to be different, uh, which is a completely unbiblical and, and harmful way of teaching. This teaches us um, that we sing praise to our Lord in all situations, 
uh, whether we are the saints on earth who are still suffering in many ways. There are many things to lament, certainly, but we do have reason to sing a song of praise and victory because our Lord has revealed himself in his righteous acts, uh, not only the ones that he promises to reveal in the last day when he'll bring all evil to an end, but the one we reference most, uh, even more than the Exodus story, is, of course, the story of Jesus. Um, when the Lord revealed his righteous act of um, judgment, not upon us, but upon his son who took that judgment in our place, and then uh, God uh, never disconnected from Good Friday as Easter Sunday uh, when God raised his son from the dead. So not just the act of judgment, but the act of deliverance from death. Um, and that's why the saints here are singing that. They know his righteous acts have been revealed. They know who God is. They glorify his name. And that's why we sing that same uh, song of praise here on earth. Our victory is not seen in material blessings or perfect situations. Um, God has done uh, what needed to be done in Christ to save us from our sins. And he will, if we die before Christ comes, he'll raise us from the dead. Uh, and if we are still alive when the Lord returns, which would be, that would be something. Um we will see the Lord in his glory and we won't fear his coming. Uh, you know, we, we won't hear those trumpets and think, oh no, Jesus is here. Like, oh, yeah. God be praised, Jesus is here. Uh, and maybe we'll be singing the same song that these saints are. Yeah, and and as you said, that's the song that we sing right now because we know how the battle has, has already turned out. Even as the battle is being waged right now, we know, as we heard in verse 2, that we are among those who've conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, because we belong to Christ. And that does fill us with boldness. It fills us with defiance, that even when we look at our lives and we don't see, quote, victory, we sing the songs of victory already because we know that that is where this story is headed. That's where we're all going in Christ. And we we do. I mean, that's the—and I, I guess the best image of that— is that a, or at least the best one that I can think of, is at a Christian funeral where mm -hmm. you've got a casket in the front of the church. But what are you singing? Jesus lives, the victory's won, or I mm -hmm. know that my Redeemer lives, or you know, pick your favorite Easter hymn. That's what you're singing at that moment, even though there's someone who's died right in front of you because you know how it goes. You can sing those songs of victory. Really, we do this every Sunday morning, I think. You mm -hmm. can think about the way that our lives, Monday through Saturday, may go doesn't look like victory, but we get together every Sunday morning and we sing, this is the feast of victory of mm -hmm. our God, because we know how yeah. it goes, and that's the defiance we have as Christians. Yeah, and I heard one pastor put it this way, um, when we come to the Lord's house each week and we have ha had that previous week in our minds, we come and we are asking, is the Lamb still on his throne? Um, and each week where we receive God's Word and sacrament is almost like a little peek back into the throne of heaven and saying, yes, he's still there. Uh, and we need that reminder a lot. Um, and one, one other thing I will say too, um, it, it's, this is not to say that you have to, um, you know, smile through all the difficulties of life, right. uh, the suffering, uh, going back even to funerals. I think some people feel like they have to be happy and smiley and, 
uh, oh, this is something to celebrate. And it's not that there aren't things to celebrate because the person is not suffering anymore, certainly. Um, but there are also songs of lament that we sing, uh, very much so in the Psalms. There's a whole book called Lamentations. Um, so it's paired with, uh, we sing a song of lament. And even in the Psalms of lament, though, you see um, an attitude of trust and confidence in the goodness of God. And that's what we can look at this as with that, you know, this, the glass mingled with fire. Uh, we yeah. suffer, certainly, but it's a suffering that doesn't um, make us untethered from God. It doesn't separate us from God. Um, so just, yeah. just a thought I had there, it's you don't have to ignore your suffering. You certainly should voice that to God and to his people, but um, it's... It's never a situation, you know, Christians are never without hope. As Paul says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Um, so just, yeah. just another thought I had there. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I mean, that, that's great. That's that's the kind of encouragement that Peter gives in his first epistle, especially, where he talks about what it means to suffer as a Christian. And it doesn't mean that you, you have the smile on your face all the time, but it does mean you don't despair. It does mean that you retain the hope, because you know that that, that suffering that, that leads to hope doesn't put you to shame. It doesn't doesn't disappoint you, because it's the word you used already, vindicate. God vindicates us on the last day, and that that does fill us with hope, even when we're going through that fire of the glassy sea. Mm-hmm. So that takes us to the end of the song of Moses and the Lamb in verse four, and John looks again, and he he now sees the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven open, and here come those seven angels with the seven plagues out of that sanctuary. We hear about how they're clothed. We hear about what they're given to carry and what they're going to do, which is going to be the bridge into chapter 16. So there's plenty to talk about in these last several verses, bringing us back to the seven angels with the seven plagues. Uh, get us started with with where they're coming from, the sanctuary of the tent of witness. Sure. Yeah. And there is a, a lot to unpack, so feel free to interject with your insights at any point. Stop my babbling. <laughs> Um, but we start with the imagery of the tabernacle that comes, of course, from the Old Testament. We think back to uh, the 40 years in the wilderness where Israel wandered and the presence of God was marked by uh, the tabernacle with the tent of meeting. Um, God graciously gave them his presence even as they were wandering aimlessly before they entered the promised land and God would um, personally meet with Moses and his people to reveal his testimonies to them there. Um, and the tabernacle here that it's envisioning uh, is is similar, but it, it has some stark differences too. Um, this is the dwelling of God with his people on earth through his judgments. Um, this is the place from which, you know, again, this is not the angels in this passage are the ones that have all this power and authority. It's It all emanates from God. It's God is its source, and that's one of the main things. This um, sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven is signifying is this has God as its source, um, and his divine presence uh, is manifested here by sending out these messengers, by sending out his judgment. And I, I use the analogy, I, I hope this is helpful. I thought of a king. Um, how does a king rule and reign and make his presence felt among his subjects? Um, he goes and fights for them. He goes to war for them. He goes into distant lands against armies that would threaten the safety of his people. 
and from his gates, uh, you might imagine that as the the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. Uh, that's where his military might, his armies come forth and conquer on behalf of his people. Um, this is what God is doing here in this vision. It's a final judgment of the end of the world. But you might even think of it too, uh, going back to Christ, where Christ is sent from the Father. That language is very heavy in the Gospel of John, of course, that we've been looking at. Um, but it's it's Christ comes forth from the Father. He comes down from his heavenly throne to establish uh, definitively God's rule and reign on earth with this you know mighty act of conquering death and Satan and sin and then this resurrection. So you, I would I would think of the tabernacle like this in this context where it's just signifying this is God's judgment coming from him to earth on behalf of his people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. I can go into the next couple things. I, I think that's helpful, the image of the king and the way that he makes his presence known among his people by both going to war for them so that they would continue to dwell in his presence and so that the enemies who would prevent them from dwelling in his presence might be removed. I, I think that's I think that's right on. Uh, Martin Franzman, in his commentary on Revelation, talks about a very similar thing, I think. He, he notes the fact that these angels are coming from this opened sanctuary, and, and he says this, they, these angels, serve to bring man into communion with his God again by calling to repentance all who will hear and by destroying all who will not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the fact that they're coming from this sanctuary is a reminder that God does desire to dwell among his people, and what we're going to see poured out by these angels isn't just God sort of like pouring out wrath because he wants to, it is part of his call to repentance so that we would hear and, and believe and then be made to dwell with him forever. So I think, I think you're right on with that image. Uh, talk to us about the angels, because we find out a little bit more about what they look like and what they're wearing. How, how is that significant? Yeah, it's an, it, you always want to look at these little details, which may not be so little when you look into them. Uh, you read, oh, the, the angels are wearing golden sashes, um, bright linen. Uh, those are a couple things that you can see otherwise in Scripture, white and gold. Uh, white is the, the color of purity and holiness um, that you see. We, we think of the angels back at the tomb of Jesus in the Gospels are described in this way as, as bright, white, brilliant. Um, They're pure and holy as messengers of God. Um, the gold is a sign of uh, royalty. Uh, back in Revelation 1.13, John describes the Son of Man who is clad in, it's called a golden cincture. That's what your pastor wears around his waist. If he wears an alb and a stole, he'll tie the cincture, the rope around his waist. Um, that's a sign of royalty here. They're, these angels are coming and be acting on behalf of the King of Kings. So what they do and and how they act is representative of what God intends to do. There's no um, disconnect between what the angels are doing and what the Lord is doing, uh, the holy God. And um, there's there's probably a little bit more you could say about the angels and, and how they look, but I think that's that's probably enough to say about those. Even, um, you know, there's, there's probably more you could say about what does an angel look like? Is it, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff in the scriptures about, you know, uh, you know, pe- people think, I mean, people use this language, oh, there's such a little angel, you know, and 
<laughs> angels are terrifying <laughs> in the scriptures. People are always just, you know, dumbstruck or absolutely frozen in terror when they see angels. So that's likely what they look like here. But John thought it important to show this connection between um, the one who sends them and what they're doing. Um, there's no disconnect, and that's even shown by the things they wear. So a neat little detail there. Um, and you have to ask, why did he why did he have to say that they were wearing golden sashes and white linen? That's I think that's one of the reasons why he chose to include that. Yeah. Talk to us. We've got about five minutes here. I think one of the, the words that's going to jump off the page for, for many, and it's going to continue to chapter 16, is the thought that these bowls are full of God's wrath. So right. talk to us a little bit about the, the wrath of God. Here, we've got about five minutes. I think that'll help us to wrap this conversation up and also get us ready for the, the next one in chapter 16. Certainly. Um, so yes, this is quite a prominent theme, especially in these chapters. I, I'm not certain how, how much it comes up the rest of the book, but even just throughout the scriptures, the wrath of God is a an important theme to meditate on, to ponder. Um, right here, we see um, a terrifying picture of God's wrath as seven bowls full of plagues. We don't get to see the content of those plagues and the bowls until chapter 16, so that'll be something that we'll get into in more detail in another episode. But um, this is showing uh, the the wrath of God is, is not a comfortable topic, but it's absolutely necessary. It's part of God's justice. Um, I, you shared a quote with me earlier from one of the commentaries you referenced. Uh, someone describes it as the impassioned but deliberate majesty of God the judge. So it's not violently, you know, angry. It's not God just, you know, I hate these people. I, I can't stand them. I'm going to stomp them out. No, this is God who takes sin seriously. This is God who pronounces uh, his law and says there are consequences for that, and he is true to that. Um, it is not the desire of God to be mean to people or manipulate them or torture them. That's not what God does. It's not who he is. Um, this is this is the judgment of God against sin. It's the punishment for sin. Um, and you see the wrath of God when you talk about it. There's, there's a helpful way to think about it, uh, the way we see it in the world today and the way that we see it here. Um, we see God's wrath coming in the form of punishment against sin in our world. So there are consequences for sin as the Lord describes. And, and that's just something he's built into the creation, uh, where, you know, you look at the 10 commandments, um, there are clear consequences when you break those things go poorly. I mean, it's, it's just, you break the, you know, the fifth commandment, you shall not murder, uh, even if it's not murder, even if you harm your neighbor, there are consequences for that. And that's part of the wrath of God in his creation is judgment against sin. But sometimes it's even a, a passive role in letting sin run its course. And we see that um, Paul describes this sort of wrath of God in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. He even uses that phrase, the wrath of God shows forth when God um, gives people over to their sinful desires, which leads to destruction. Um, but this, this wrath of God here is ultimately, um, the judgment against the people who, uh, have rejected him, who do not believe in Christ as their savior. And it's the, the punishment, the ultimate punishment that separates them from him for eternity. 
And um, again, it's it's a difficult topic. It needs to be spoken about because it's it's very much a biblical topic. The way Christians, uh, when you t- ask where's the comfort for Christians, when we talk about that, um, we do acknowledge, you know, we are still sinners. Um, we still have consequences for our sin. We're called to repentance, not just by this book of Revelation. That's one of the purposes is to call. You see the seven churches being called to repentance. Um, that's us as well. The whole scriptures have that theme of repentance throughout them. But when we think of the the most severe manifestation of the wrath of God that we should have had, uh, we look to the cross, right? Because the Lord Jesus takes God's just punishment for sin that we deserved. Um, he takes it upon himself. He, um, as Corinthians says, he, be, he who knew sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So it goes from wrath to righteousness for us. Uh, and the Lord Jesus takes that. He endures that punishment. We don't know what that's like. We don't know what it feels like to have that full wrath of God that we deserve because Christ took it in our place. I always tell people we'll never know what that feels like. We never have to because the Lord Jesus took that in our place. That agony, those um, six hours on the cross, um, the suffering he endured, um, that's not something we'll ever know what it's like uh, to be forsaken by the Father. Um, And we get to say, we see this wrath being poured out by God here. Uh, We want to call people to repentance. We want to call them um, to faith with the gospel message. We want to preach the word and share it that the Holy Spirit might create faith. Um, But we have this in mind that there is a final judgment. It's a very serious thing, and we want to share our faith. Um, and even God says he desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, so again, that's a sign this is not a vindictive action of God. The fact that he's delaying uh, this judgment, I think is First Peter, Second Peter says he's not being slow in keeping his promises of judgment and resurrection and all that. Um, uh, he's being patient that all men might come to repentance. So we don't have to fear this. Uh, we, we certainly warn others of it. We um, look at it with, with awe, but we say when that wrath is poured out on the last day, um, I, I've referenced this on other episodes probably, so people might be getting tired of hearing it, hopefully not, but that baptismal language we have in our liturgy, which says, um, so shall you stand before the judgment seat of God without fear, because you are closed with the righteousness of Jesus. So this wrath is not for us. It is not for the children of God uh, because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Um, I don't know if you have any other any other points to make. There's so much you could say about it, but that's kind that's of... A, that's a good place to leave it, that, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and so spared from the wrath of God. Pastor Joel Heckman is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. He's been helping us today to study Revelation 15, verses 1 to 8. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. You're very welcome. I'm your host on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this chapter of Revelation, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.